Last week, I, I wasn't here. I was at a conference in Indianapolis. Uh, my wife was able to go with me, and I'd begun, I was planning on, on sharing a little bit about that, but I think I'll, I'll just save that. If you'd like to hear more about that conference, I'd love to share it with you. Just what my wife and I, we gleaned, and it was good. We saw friends, and uh, I was surrounded by just good preaching and 8,500 other believers, and uh, it was good, but, but um, getting on the news today and, and seeing that there were Christians in Egypt doing the same thing that we're doing right now. They, they gathered for Palm Sunday. They gathered to, to worship God. They gathered because of their love for Jesus Christ. And, and as they were in the midst, just like this, bombs were placed underneath the seats and many of our Christian brothers and sisters in Alexandria and Tanta were killed in Egypt today. Um, and so these are the days that we live in. We live in days, which is not necessarily uncommon. We've seen all throughout church history that, that Christians have been killed. And especially in the last uh, 200 years, more Christians have been killed than in all the centuries prior uh, so we're seeing Christians killed at, at an alarming rate. And if that's not enough, um, I think it was Wednesday, ISIS executed 33 people. Um, earlier this week, Syria experienced chemical attack, attack which killed men, women, and children. So I just want to begin in prayer today. Um, we're living in a time where, where people, um, Christians especially, are being hunted and killed um, we are, we're very fortunate to gather in America right now. We're very fortunate with the freedoms that we have. And I think we take that a lot for granted. Um, but I want us to just take time and remember our brothers and sisters who, who are suffering, whose, whose their lives have been broken, their families have been broken, um, and just spend time praying for them, for boldness for them, and that the gospel would continue to go. So let's just spend a few moments in prayer. Father, Father, I'm glad that we can just come to you right now and that you hear our prayers. And we know that you are present with our believers, um, our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who are suffering right now, especially those in Egypt and Alexandria and Tanta where moms have been killed, fathers have been killed, children have been killed, families have been broken. And God, in one sense, it looks like there's a great, great win for the enemy, but yet we know we know that you are sovereign. We know that you are in control. We know that you use these things for the proclamation of the gospel. And that we know that those brothers and sisters are not separated from you, but yet they're now literally in your presence, God. So we praise you for that. We praise you that death does not have the last word, but your son has the last word. And so, Father, we, we pray for boldness for our... Um, for Christians in other parts of the world right now, especially in Egypt, that they would stand firm upon the gospel. Now, they would not begin to compromise, but they would stand firm knowing that you are God of gods and King of kings and Lord of lords, and that you are the Hosanna. You are the blessed one, the anointed one. And so, Father, as we gather here today, and we have freedom, God, may we rejoice in the freedom that we have. May we leverage that freedom for your glory. May we be bold in our faith here because we are so we have such freedom. So we may be may we be bold to our neighbors and to our, our co-workers and to wherever everyone that you place before us. Um, but God, we, we turn to you and we just thank you. 
We thank you that you are Father and that you are sovereign. And the events today have not disrupted your plans. Yet we know you're in control. And we know that your gospel will go further into more nations today because of this. And that your love is being revealed through the believers and through the suffering that's even taking place. Give us faith today. Strengthen us as we're in your word. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Um, this is Palm Sunday. Uh, next week is Easter. Uh, this is the day, as, as my wife already t- said, 2,000 years ago, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, but he leaves on a cross. He enters with shouts of praise, but he leaves being mocked. And why was he killed? Why was he crucified? It's because of authority. Jesus talked with a different kind of authority. He acted with a different kind of authority. It was normal to hear when he teaches, the crowds would say, wow, we have never heard someone teach with such authority. It's as if he wrote it and actually believes it. The irony that is there. So when Jesus taught, the crowds were amazed His mere existence was threatening the comfort and the status of the religious leaders. And so out of sin, they rejected Jesus and his authority and sought to have him killed. And today, we still see people rejecting the authority of Jesus. We see it in large um, acts like what we see today in Egypt, where people reject those who are made in the image of God. We see that um, in in small acts where where the gospel is preached and people deny it. We see it in churches today where people hear the gospel and yet they don't believe in the gospel, but yet they keep being near and with the church. Because of sin, we're full of pride and we do not want to bow before Jesus. That's who we are because of our sin nature. We want people to bow before us. But what we're going to see in our text today is that our eternity depends on whether we bow before Jesus or whether we stand in defiance against him. And there are consequences for standing against him. And so that's, that's what our text is specifically going to show. And so our text today is in Luke chapter 20. Most likely this is Tuesday. Um, and on, later today, if you go to our website and you look on the blog that's there under resources, um, there is a, I'm going to put a link. It's not there yet, so don't go there right now. It'll be later today. So if you go, you know, at like 6 p.m. tonight, it'll be there. Uh, but there is a video series that Crossway put out. Uh, and it has all the way from Sunday all the way to Easter, and it's just brief. It's like three, four, five minute long. Um, it's neat. It just kind of brings in a little bit of the teaching. I encourage you, watch it. Uh, you can watch it all at once. I watched like four of them this morning, uh, so you can cheat, or you can just take one day at a time and make your way all the way through, uh, but it was a neat, encouraging little video series, so I encourage you to, to look at that. Uh, but today we're going to look at Luke chapter 20, most likely this is Tuesday, and I'm going to invite you to go ahead and stand as we read this scripture. We stand when we read scripture here because we believe it is inspired by God and it's a holy scripture. Luke chapter 20 verses 1 through 19, or 1 through 18 actually. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us. By what authority you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another saying, If we we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death. 
for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and led it out to the tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of their vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, this one they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this, is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. You all may be seated. So what we have here, um, we have a teaching from Jesus on most likely Tuesday. And we begin, just in the first couple verses, we see that Jesus is a picture of faithfulness to the end. Notice what he's doing in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him. So he's teaching and he's preaching. As he's nearing death, he doesn't slow down. Let that just be a word of encouragement. Let us continue to preach. And especially those of you who who want to classify yourselves maybe as older, I'll let you determine if you fit that category. Um, Let us not slow down. Let us not slow down as we age, but let us continue to be faithful, preaching and teaching the word and making disciples. But the religious leaders, they're going to confront Jesus so they can expose him as a fool. That's what we have here in the beginning. And we have a description, or at least we have a, we're, no, we're told who these leaders are. We have the chief priests. These are the ones who are, they're in charge of the temple worship. We have the scribes, they're the experts of the law. They're the ones who are writing the law every single day. They have practically in the entire Old Testament memorized, and they surely have the Torah memorized. And then you have the elders, just influential men. So we have a group of powerful, influential men coming to question Jesus. And in one sense, it seems a little bit overkill, doesn't it? I mean, is Jesus Jason Bourne? I mean, it appears like that where we have this group of elite men coming to face one person, but what we will see is that they're no match for Jesus. And what do they come to question? Well, they come to question his authority. They say, tell us, by what authority do you do these things? Or who is it that gave you this authority? So, so what are these things? Well, we're being that we're Bible people, we then look at the previous section, right? Because that's what we do. Well, what are these things? We'd go back a chapter. Well, what did Jesus just do? Well, on Sunday, what did Jesus do? Well, he rode in on a donkey, 
fulfilling Zechariah 9.9, which says the Messiah will come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and the crowds are saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So what we have here is the disciples and many people in Jerusalem are seeing Jesus, and it's fulfilling scripture. The Pharisees see this. They know exactly what is happening. This group of religious leaders, they're not dumb to this. They know this man is claiming to be the Messiah. And then what does he do on Monday? Well, he enters into the temple and he cleans house. It's like he owns the place. Again, we have irony. The temple is actually in the temple. Jesus comes into the temple and cleans it. So these leaders would clearly be saying, here's a Messiah-type figure. Crowds are seeing this. Crowds are affirming this. And yet, this Messiah figure doesn't seem to be playing by the rules. He doesn't seem to come and pay us the respect that we should have. He seems to actually be bucking the system. He's cleaning the temple where we make our money. So now they want to question Jesus so that he would appear as a fool and a fraud and that the crowds would not continue to follow him. And so how does Jesus respond to them? Well, he knows that they're trying to trap him. He's no fool. It's like he can read their minds. He knows their thoughts and their intentions. And Jesus is certainly no Jason Bourne. We're not going to see him, you know, defeat these people with his bare hands. He's much greater than any Jason Bourne. He uses words. And he's going to expose the foolishness of these leaders. And uh, so he's going to ask them a question, which is a common practice of rabbis. You ask them a question, you get a question back. Don't you love those people? It's kind of like when you go to your parents when you're young, you say, hey, mom, how do you spell this word? Go look it up in the dictionary. If I could do that, (laughs) I wouldn't have had to come. And so Jesus turns and asks them a question, and he's going to reveal the foolishness of these religious leaders. And Jesus asked them a question. John's baptism, heaven or man, where does it come from? Which one? Jesus is asking whether they thought John baptized with the authority of God or man. Did they think John was a prophet or was he a fool? And earlier in Luke, what we see is that all who believe in the baptism of John believe in Jesus. Those who reject John reject Jesus. Now notice the reasoning of the leaders. Look at that. Verse 5, they discussed it with one another saying, well, if we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us, for they're convinced John was a prophet. So they can't say it's from man because they're afraid of the people. They can't say it was of God because they didn't believe it. So what do they do? Well, they become agnostic. I don't know. That's what they do. don't, Don't miss this, though. The leaders, they're not concerned with what what is true, are they? If they believed John or Jesus or both of them or a heretic, then as God's chosen people, as the leaders of these people, they're called to call them heretics and stone them. That's the position that they are to have. The leaders are to be like shepherds. If a wolf comes in the pen, you kill the wolf, you beat the wolf, you throw it out. That's what shepherds do do but what we see is that these shepherds are not really concerned with the sheep in fact they themselves have become the wolves and they're not concerned with right and wrong and what is true they're concerned with their authority and their reputation 
and their honor. They like being respected by the people. They like having the best seats. They like having a comfortable lifestyle. And they are against anyone claiming an authority that will threaten their comfort. So they don't claim agnosticism because they lack information. Don't, don't miss that. I think a lot of times when, when someone claims to be agnostic, they think it's like a neutral position. No, it's not neutral. We either believe in Jesus or we... <clears throat> excuse me, or we reject him, their claim of agnosticism is not because <clears throat> of lack of information, but it's because they have a hard heart. It's because they're rebellious. It's because they're sinful. It's because they're trying to protect their own authority. They don't want to believe John's baptism, and they do not want to accept Jesus's authority. And so the same, same situation exists today, doesn't it? The world outwardly rejects the authority of Jesus. John 14, 6, where Jesus says he's the way, the truth, and life. That's absurd and stupid, says the world. You can't have exclusive claims on heaven. The world rejects Jesus' authority and says, no, you don't determine who gets to go in heaven. We get to determine who goes into heaven they imagine that there's going to be a buddhist section a hindu section an agnostic section an atheist section sure a christian section mormon section and all these other sections because we get to decide what is right and what is wrong you see the message of the world is you are your own authority isn't that right i mean isn't that the message of the world? you have the right to decide if you want to be a boy or a girl you have that authority to redefine your identity. You have the authority to decide if homosexuality is good or not. You have the authority and the right to pursue your own happiness at whatever the cost. You have the authority to live however you want. That's the message of the world. In fact, I have this friend slash acquaintance um, on Facebook, and just recently, he came out and said, well, he's, he's chosen to be gay, so he's going to leave his wife and his son, and he's now going to stop living a lie, and he's now going to, to live in the freedom that he believes that he has the right to live. And what was more astonishing than reading his, his post was the 51, and probably now, more comments that came after it, and I, I read them. Every single comment affirmed him and said, stop living lie. We are so proud of you. We are so glad you're finally being who you are supposed to be. We'll pray for your family. They'll be fine, but good job for you to finally do what makes you happy. And that's the message of the world. You are your own authority, and I have no right to question you. This is the new tolerance. The new tolerance is, I have to believe your belief is not only the same as mine, but equal to mine. There is no better or worse. That's the new tolerance that's being communicated today. The church also struggles with Jesus' authority. Many churches now struggle uh, with their views on inspiration of the Bible. And what they have done is begin to say, well, I don't actually think all of it's inspired. I think there are some parts that are not inspired. It may have used to have all been inspired. 
but there's some parts that have been now outdated. We now have more information. We're smarter people. God's truths certainly are not timeless. Things like um, we now are saying that divorce is not really bad. Homosexuality is fine. Gluttony is okay. It's okay to ordain women pastors and so much more. And what they begin to do is say, we simply have more reasoning now. We're smarter now. We just need to get the Bible to adapt to the times that it's in. And they say, and so what they're doing is they're exercising their authority over the Bible. In reality, they don't want the God of the Bible to be their God. They want to be God. That's, that's what it comes down to. I don't, because, you know, they don't redefine the easy sections. You know, like geography and certain events, but they redefine truths like do not lie, do not murder. Well, maybe it's okay to do those things. Do not divorce. Well, maybe it's okay to do those things. They begin to redefine the areas that begin to infringe upon their lifestyle. Even as true believers, we struggle with Jesus' authority, don't we? I mean, Clearly, in the Bible, we have passages that teach us to read our Bibles, to pray, to make disciples, to give to the church, to be a part of the church. But regularly, I I hear Christians who say, well, I I just don't have time to read the Bible. I just don't have time to pray. I may have time to do all these other things that I want to do, but I don't have time to read. I haven't been at church for a while, but that's okay, I've been... I've been busy doing other things. I'm tired on Saturdays. Don't I deserve to have a day to myself? Don't I deserve to be able to do a few things that I want? And it becomes clear that, well, yeah, we like Christianity, but I like it on my terms. I don't actually want to bow before Jesus. I simply want to listen to him as as someone with some good suggestions. And, And I'll take those suggestions when they serve me. But honestly, I like sleep more than I like getting up and reading the Bible. And I have the authority to make that decision, so I do. I don't want to give money to the church or to those in need. Why? Because if I'm honest, I have things I want to buy for myself. I mean, the people who don't give are usually not the ones who are just tied or tight financially. Those people actually usually still give, amazingly. The ones who don't give are usually people with money, and we simply don't give because we've tied up our money in so many other places. We now say, well, it would be really hard to give. But I keep wanting to buy these other things. And so we continually make reasons why we do not submit to the authority of Jesus. Now, hear this. Submission to Jesus' authority is a stumbling block for unbelievers and is a constant battle for us as believers. If you're here today, it's a battle every day of bowing down before Jesus, taking up our cross, denying ourselves, being led by the Spirit versus the flesh. It's a constant battle. It's one that we need one another constantly encouraging each other. It's we need the Word to fuel ourselves and our faith. Let me ask you, are there areas in your life you know that you're being disobedient to God? I mean, just areas you know that you're just not obeying Scripture. Perhaps it's reading the Bible. Do you read the Bible? Do you only read when it's convenient? 
Maybe it's prayer. Maybe it's sharing God's word. Do you share God's word? Go therefore make disciples of all nations. Is that a suggestion? Do you share God's word? Whom have you shared God's word with lately? Whom have you tried to share God's word with lately? Be patient and kind. Well, I would be patient and kind, but these people around me don't let me be patient and kind. Right? If you want me to be patient, give me nice people that love me. Again, we can make lots of reasons, and we can rationalize why we disobey, right? Well, yes, I'd be more submissive to my husband if he led me like Jesus. Or yes, I would sacrificially serve my wife if she submitted to me. No, no, those are not commands that are conditioned upon the other person. Those are simply commands that we are given. Most of us, we are disobedient not because we need more information, but because we want to do what we want to do. Just think about that. Where are there areas in your life that you can just feel God pressing in on you through, through the Scripture, and saying, you're, you're rebelling here. Jesus has revealed to the religious leaders their foolishness, but now he wants the crowds to see the foolishness of these leaders. So in verse 9, we read, and he began to tell the people this parable. And so now Jesus, in this parable, he's going to reveal not only foolishness, but the consequences of rejecting Jesus. Because there are consequences. Again, like we said, there's no neutral ground. Agnosticism is not this area that when Jesus returns, these people are going to go, we just didn't know. And God will say, I should have been more clear. I'd given you 67 books instead of 66, then you would have been more clear. No, there are consequences if we deny Jesus. We either bow before him or we reject him, but there is no other possible position. And what we're going to see is that we cannot remain on our thrones and bow, bow, bow down before his throne also. God is calling us to get off of our thrones. And so in this parable, Jesus will reveal the destruction that awaits those who reject him. I'll take that water if you really want to give it to me. I don't really know why. I was totally fine earlier. Should have drank more coffee. Can you hear that? That's cool. And weird. Um, kind of like threw me off there. Uh, we're just going to talk about the parable. Um, I want to give some pointers on parables. We'll break down the parable, and then we'll give what we see. So a couple reading tips. So this is just when you're reading parables, these are two things that you need to do. Number one, when reading a parable, we don't break down all the details. It's kind of like any illustration. You'll lose the point if you try to break down all the details. For example, the owner of the vineyard is God. Verse 13, we read, the owner says, what shall I do? Is God actually saying, what do I do? Man, these guys are not accepting my servants. We can't break down the details of the parable. We'll lose the meaning of the parable. So number two plays right on top of that. We look for the straightforward, obvious meaning in the text. So the parable is going to give one meaning. It's going to be clear. We take that meaning, and we don't try to find these little hidden meanings in there. So this parable is not about how to better manage our business. 
How to, how to treat your employees. How employees are to treat their bosses. It has nothing to do with that at all. If you're ever standing before a pastor and he says, now, let me give you six steps. No, just walk out then and let that be your message to him. Really, I, I would do that. Um, teaching us the consequences of rejecting Jesus. Clear meaning of the parable here. So let me give you the details of the parable. Um, the owner of the vineyard, of course, is God. The vineyard is Israel. Now, this would be completely instinctive for the hearers at that time. In fact, when you would go into uh, the temple, there'd be a large golden vine with giant grape clusters on it as you're walking into the temple. So every time the Jews or anyone's coming to the temple, they're going to see a large vine representing the people of God. Isaiah chapter 5, we have the vineyard song where God says, I planted a vineyard. And of course, he goes to collect grapes, but there's not the right kind of grapes. They always produce the wrong kind of grapes. And so God will then plow up that vineyard and plant a new one. Jesus, if you remember in John 15, says, I am the vine. Jesus is actually the true vine, not Israel, or at least Israel of the Old Testament as we see. But Jesus is the true vine, and all the people of God find their faith in him. The tenants, well, they're going to be the religious leaders. The servants are the Old Testament prophets. We know that because we see here these servants come, they give their message, we come for the fruit. They are continually beaten, discount, disc, uh, or cast out, rejected. Um, things like 2 Chronicles 36 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistence persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place but they kept mocking the messengers of God despising his words scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy we see that all throughout I think I, think I actually put other passages like Jeremiah 35 and I think I even put another passage in Luke where regularly we see that Prophets are being sent to the people, and they're being rejected. In fact, if you go to Hebrews chapter 11, you'll see the men of faith and women of faith who go, and at the end of that section, we see many of them were killed, such as Isaiah was sawn in two, and many of the prophets that would go to the people of God were rejected and killed. Then we have the Son. Well, that's the Son, Jesus Christ. Um, so what I want to do is I want to point out three things we learn about God here. And under the last one, we'll see three things we also learn about Jesus. Number one, God is patient. <coughs> God is patient. From the moment God has brought Israel out of Egypt, they have been sinful. Go back and read Exodus. As soon as they leave, I mean, as soon as they leave, they begin complaining. They begin rebelling against him. They're like rebellious sheep that keep straying from the shepherd. So what does God do? Sends prophets, keeps sending prophets, sends more prophets, turn to me, repent, believe in God. And what do they do? Well, they kill the prophets, they reject them. What does God then do? Does he strike them down with lightning as many people think the God of the Old Testament does? He's just ready there with lightning bolts. He's got a good arm, he's going to throw it, he never misses. Is that what we see in the Bible? See, people that say that we need to be ready to respond to them with actually what the Bible says. No. He sends more prophets. That's what he does. You killed my people, so now I keep sending you more prophets. 
why does he do this? Well, it's because God is patient. In fact, in Romans, <clears throat> Romans 2.4, we read this. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Paul is saying, do you know why God doesn't bring wrath on you right now? You know why God doesn't send his son right now to return and, and to bring, gather his people and destroy those who rebel against him? Do you know why God doesn't do that? It's because he's patient. He wants more people to repent. He's kind at this moment. He's willing to allow things that happened in Egypt today, in Syria, and other parts of the world, so that the gospel will continue to go out, so that more people will continually hear the word. Because as long as God is being patient, you and I, as his messengers, continue to proclaim the gospel so rebels would become sons of God. Because he's kind. That's what we see in the text. He keeps sending messenger after messenger. He's patient. I hope you know that. Our God is patient. So aren't you glad he's patient with you? Especially as we keep sinning and rebelling. And as many of us right now, admittedly, there's areas we struggle with submitting to God. And sometimes we submit to God really well. And then we, we take those areas back and we say, well, I'm done submitting. And then God continues to reveal our need to submit to him. Number two, God is gracious. God does not just send messengers, but who else does he send? His son. Verse 13, the owner of the vineyard says, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. He sends his son that he would come to this earth and die for your sins and my sins to be the propitiation so he would absorb the wrath that you and I should have received from God and that we would receive righteousness from God. We'd be declared righteous. And so that when God now looks at us, he sees his son's righteousness on you and me. And therefore, we're adopted into his family. Is amen indeed. It's such good news. So did, did God not know Jesus would be rejected or crucified? Was God saying, maybe, maybe the Jews will listen Maybe if I send my son, finally they'll say, yes, now we see he really loves us. Now, of course, we'll give you what you deserve. No, it's not at all what we see in text. God is sovereign over all events. In Acts chapter 2, verse 23, Peter stands up the Pentecost, at Pentecost. He gives this message to all those who before him. And in verse 23, he says, this Jesus delivered up according to the <clears throat> definite plan and foreknowledge of God that was crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It wasn't plan B, C, D, E, F, G. Before time, the Trinity had a conversation, said, I'm going to send the Son. The Son said, okay, because he always submits to the Father. I'm going to send you so that one day I will create a people who will worship me through the Son. That's why we have the cross. That's why evil things happen, just so you know. I mean, we can go into a lot more detail. Ultimately, you want to know why? It's because God desires to be worshipped through His Son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. That's why. 
He didn't just create a people to worship him, specifically a people who will worship through the grace of Jesus Christ at the cross. That was the plan. There's a lot more details in there, a lot bigger explanation, but that is why God sent his son. I feel so self-conscious drinking this now, but that's okay. What we see is that God is gracious. He's incredibly gracious. His messengers have been killed. He now sends his son who he knows will be killed. He knows his son will be killed. But he does it so that you and I would be able to receive the gospel, receive Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, be forgiven and adopted into the family of God and live with him forever. Verse 13 Notice how God refers to the son, or the owner refers to his son. I will send my beloved son. Now where else in Luke do we hear these words, my beloved son? Well, we've already been alluded to it. Back in Jesus, when he questions the, the leaders, he says, do you remember John's baptism? Man or, man or God? And so now, where do we remember those words, my beloved son? Well, it was at the baptism of Jesus where John baptized him, that the Father then speaks and says, you are my beloved Son. With you I'm well pleased. Even in the parable, he's answering them. I'm the Son of God. That's the authority that I come with, is what Jesus is saying. That's why when we reject Jesus, we reject the Father. That's why Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, because he is the Son of God. Now notice, why do they reject him? Is it because of lack of information? If only he'd been a little more clear. Let's go look back at verse 6. I think it's verse, um, no, I'm sorry, uh, farther down. Verse 14. This is the heir. Let's kill him. Why? So that the inheritance would be ours. They want the goods of God without God. That's what they want. They want salvation. They want, they want riches. They want forgiveness. They want comfort. They want everything that God offers, but they want it on their terms. Ultimately, they want to be God. They, they, they look at their riches. They look at their honor. They look at their comfort. They, they love the fact that other people stare at them and think, wow, those people have it all together, and they can't imagine giving any of that up. But listen, when God calls us, to give up our earthly riches, it's only so that he would replace those with eternal riches. You see, Jesus came to die on a cross, so we as rebels, we'd be adopted in the family, we've covered that, right? And when we become adopted as sons, we become not just heirs, but co-heirs with Christ. So what does it mean that we're a co-heir with Christ? Well, it means everything that the son has we have. Do you know that? Yeah. Everything the Son has, you have. The same delight that the Father has in the Son because you're now covered in His righteousness, the Father has that delight in you. You see, he's saying give up these eternal riches. They're going to burn up anyway. Or these, these earthly riches. And trust in me that I might give you everything you see when we come to jesus in reality we don't lose anything because everything on earth is going to burn up anyway right 
but we gain everything. Let me read Revelation 3.21. It's this amazing passage. It's at the end of the letters in Revelation. It's to the last church, to Laodicea. And Jesus says to the one who conquers, meaning the one who keeps persevering, the one who lives by faith. So that's who he's talking about. He says, so to the one who conquers, I will grant with him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So do you see it? So Jesus says, get off your throne, believe in me, that you would persevere, that you would continue to trust in me, so that just as I sit on the Father's throne, you would now sit with me. So who do we sit with? Yeah, we sit with Jesus and who? And the Father. Which throne do you want, yours or that one? What does Jesus really ask us to give up? He's saying, give up the very things that are going to burn up, that aren't going to last, and come, bow down before me that I could give you everything. Do you see how absurd it is to reject Jesus? It's actually, it's, it's absurd. It's foolish to reject Jesus. It's foolish for us to cling to our earthly riches when God promises us eternal riches in Jesus. Just think about that. What area are you not submitting to Jesus in? And don't think that we're called to have compartments. Well, I submit to Jesus in 98%. Would you want your wife to be 98% faithful to you? Would you? Is God saying, well, I'm so glad they were almost very faithful. They were close to being totally faithful. God's calling us completely lay down our lives before him that we'd be living sacrifices for him so in those areas what is it where were you not submitting to jesus is are you rejecting reading the bible do you do that because you want to sleep more so think about that sleep compare with the eternal riches of god or maybe it's your money and you're saying well i just don't really give I don't give money to the poor. I don't give money to the church. I, I just keep buying the things I want. It, are those things better than Jesus? Eternal life with him? Do they, do they compare at all? Just think, what area are you being disobedient? Contrast that with eternity and say, is that logical? Does, does that align with my faith? If I truly believe Jesus is the Son of God and has all authority... Am I treating him like that? Or do I treat him like he's got suggestions for me? He calls us to make disciples. Are we making disciples? C.S. Lewis said the problem with man is that we're too easily pleased. We love being in our backyard making mud pies when instead we could go over the fence and we could spend a day at the beach making sandcastles. But we get so narrow focused. We look at these little things that we have and we become oblivious to the eternal riches that God is offering us through his son, Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, are you foolishly thinking that you can follow Jesus while you're still sitting on your throne? And at this moment, you might be rationalizing the things that you're doing. You might be thinking, well, it's not that bad. Well, I'm about to work this out. Give me a few more weeks or a few more months. And when you say that, who's in control at that moment? Or who thinks that they're in control? Is it not you? 
Let me ask you, have you submitted to Jesus Christ as your King and your Lord? You see, we're actually no different than the tenants. We are the tenants. We're born rebellious against God. We're born saying, I want stuff. Right? I want stuff. I want to be honored. I want the nice seats. I want people to look at me. I want respect. We're born rejecting the Son. We're born rejecting God's authority. That's why He sent His Son. Because we reject Him. So God sent His Son so that by grace we'd be saved and that our eyes would be opened and that we would see the beauty of the Son and that we'd fall down before Him out of joy and willingness as living sacrifices that all parts of our lives would be lived for Him. Do you know what all means? I know we struggle with it at times, right? We know all means all, but sometimes I think all means some. But God calls us that all of our lives would be bowed before Him. You see, we don't need to be concerned with our comfort right now. Do you realize that? Because it's going to go away anyway. God promises us eternal riches, eternal comfort, all in Jesus. You know, I, I go camping. I love camping. But you know, camping's uncomfortable in some ways. I mean, it's super fun. I got hammocks and we got tents. And, but it's not like sleeping in my bed. You know? And, and like, we even went winter camping like this. And like, it's like zero outside. It's awesome. But you know what? Like, I wouldn't do that every day. But why do I do it for a day or two or three because it's temporary. I'm coming back to my bed. And, and Jesus, he left heaven, eternal riches, that he would come down. He gave up comfort, that he would come down to earth, die on a cross, so that then he would be exalted above every name. And now, because his spirit lives in us, we too are willing to give up our comfort, our, our riches, our our joys and things that we like on earth in many ways, in order to make much of Christ. Why? Not because we count, not because we love them, but because we love Jesus so much. And we know just as Jesus suffered, that showed the love of God. And as we also suffer, as we also lose our comfort, we're demonstrating the greatness of Christ. We're demonstrating the love of Christ at those moments. The last thing we see, <clears throat> we see God is, God is patient, God is gracious, and God is just. And under this one, I really kind of want to point out three things that we learn about Jesus. And we'll go through these probably much faster. Number one, Jesus is the rock rejected by the world but chosen by God. So verse 17 is a quotation from Psalm 118 verse 22. Now, Psalm 118, it's a song that Israel would sing at Passover during Holy Week. Where does this text fall? Holy Week, pretty close to Passover. Very likely, the people Jesus is talking to, either the day before, that day, or, or in this very context, they've either heard Psalm 118, they've either sung Psalm 118, they've either read Psalm 118, they know Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is about Israel being a stone that was rejected by the builders, the nations, but yet chosen by God. So that, that's the context 
And yet now, notice what Jesus does. He now says, I am the stone. He's applying the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's saying, I am that stone. I am the stone. I am the cornerstone. See, Jesus is the true Israel. He's the foundation stone upon which all of God's people are actually built upon. And and the Apostle Peter is going to use this analogy because he loves this text. And so like in 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read this, this verses 4 through 8. As you come to him, a living stone, so Peter's referring to Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him, whoever believes in the stone, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Peter sees it and he uses it in Acts and other parts of the New Testament. We see Jesus is the cornerstone that is rejected by the nations. And now, it's not just the nations, but it's the religious leaders of Israel have rejected him. And they're the ones Jesus is referring to. And he's saying, I am the cornerstone. Don't look to the temple. but I am the rock. Number two, Jesus is the rock who will destroy all the rebellious nations. In verse 18, where we read, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken into pieces. Well, that refers to the imagery in Daniel chapter 2. And many of you know that passage. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's destroyed Jerusalem. He's taken captives. He has a dream, a dream of a large statue made up of various metals. And the different parts of the statue represent different nations. And so he has this dream. He doesn't know what the dream is. So he calls Daniel. Daniel comes and he interprets the dream. And and this is what we read. Daniel chapter 2, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. He's saying, this stone that was not cut by hand, which is Jesus, strikes the nations, crushes them, and that stone is then going to fill the entire earth and become a mountain. In verse 44, he says, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw, the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. So he's saying, Jesus is clearly saying that he is the stone that has been cut out of the mountain, that strikes the nations that reject him, and when he strikes them, they will break into pieces. He will crush them. There are consequences for whether we believe in Jesus or we don't. If we reject Jesus, Scripture clearly testifies we will be crushed by the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And we will be damned to hell for all of eternity. 
Don't, don't miss the fact that in the text, the ones who are dismissing Jesus are the religious leaders. They're the ones who know this stuff. They're the ones who sat in church. They're the ones who memorized scripture and won their Awana awards or whatever other award there is. They're the ones who looked outwardly like they were near to God, but inwardly they were very, very far from God. So I, I, I urge you to heed the warning. No one comes to the Father but through the Son. No one comes to the Father but through the Son. So again, I ask, is there any part of your life you're trying to con- keep control of? Is there any part of your life you're, you've been saying, I just don't want to submit to that, but yet you feel, just as, as we're looking at the Scripture in Christ, is saying, look, I have all authority. If you reject my authority, you reject me. There's no room in heaven for those who reject me. Are you rejecting God's authority? Where are you doing that? If you're doing that today, in any area, I urge you to confess that before God. Confess Him as Lord and Savior and bow before Him. Ask for the Spirit to continually help you. Talk to other believers that they'd come alongside you and strengthen you in these areas. If Jesus is the rock that crushes all those who reject Him, He's going to be the opposite for those who love Him. So the third point, Jesus is the rock that all who believe in are built upon and made secure. I want to read just one last passage. This is probably going to be one of those familiar passages, but since we've been talking about the rock and the stone, now think about this one. Luke chapter 6, verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do, do, not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. Matthew says the sand. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. Let's build our lives on Jesus Christ, the rock. Be comforted by these words. All who believe in Jesus Christ are built upon the rock of Jesus. And there's no storm. There's no war. There's no terrorists. There's no cancer. There's no disease. There's no power. There's no force. There is nothing that separates us from the love of God. There's nothing that takes us off of the rock because on the rock we're made secure. And Jesus Christ is that rock. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for being gracious and sending your son. Thank you that you are patient even now and that you are giving time for us as your disciples to continually go into the world spreading the gospel that more people would come to know you. I pray, may we be bold. Help us to be obedient sharing your word. May we not be concerned with our comfort, with our status, with our reputation, but may we simply bow down before you and say we love you and your glory more than anything else. And we want to be obedient to you because we find great joy in obedience to you. We look towards our eternal riches in Jesus Christ and not to the comforts of this world. God, may we be people of your word. May we be people of prayer. May we be those who who feed the poor and help the needy. May we be abundantly 
giving with our money and our time and our resources. God, I pray that there are areas in our life that we have been holding on to. Expose those now. If we think that we can sit on our throne and yet still bow before you, expose that fallacy today. And may we know that you are the true God. You are the rock, the only rock, and only on you are we made secure. There is no other rock. Father, we love you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. This week is Easter. I encourage you to come. We're going to do the book of Esther. So I encourage you to just be reading Esther. We're going to preach the whole book of Esther. It'll be, I think it'll be fun. It'll be really good. And uh, come on Good Friday. We're going to do communion also on Good Friday. So I want to encourage you to come. It'll be a sweet time. It'll probably go just a little bit more than an hour. We're going to try to keep it pretty close to that time frame. So we'll go to 7 to about 8.15. Uh, but really encourage you to be able to come to that. Easter's a great time to invite friends, coworkers, um, just to, to, to gather together to hear the word, especially if you know people who have said that they're Christians, but you know they haven't been gathering with the church. Great opportunity to especially reach out to them. A lot of times that they're willing to come on Sunday. So I just really encourage you uh, to be inviting people for next week, just praying, praying for yourself, praying for also just those that might be able to come. I'm going to pray and we're dismissed. Father, we love you so much. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that in your son, we gain everything. Most of all, we gain your son, the love of your son, the grace of of the Father. And so, Father, we thank you for that. We thank you how much you've loved us. I pray that we, as we go out today, we'd be bold. May we go out remembering our brothers and sisters in other parts of the world who gave their lives today because of their faith. And may we be willing to do the same also. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all that you give us. In your name, Jesus, amen. Have a blessed week.